Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm David Ma, and this is The Reckoning. The world now knows that George Pell, a cardinal at the highest ranks of the Vatican, has been found guilty in Australia of sexually abusing a couple of choir boys 20 years ago. But there is so much more to this than just an Australian court's judgment on this man. There are also the huge questions that loom above his case. Why was a man of this kind promoted through the church? And what kind of church promote this kind of man. It is an extraordinary story of the rise from a bush diocese in Australia to the very highest ranks of the Vatican and then the greatest fall of any church leader since this scandal broke. We're not giving in to the secular agenda. We're not uh, uh, collapsing in a heap. We've got no intention of following those radical elements in one or two countries and going out of business. Christ's teaching on marriage is not put there as a burden. It's be- it works in the long run. It's there to protect us. And the secret uh, for ca- all Catholic vitality is uh, fidelity to the teachings of Christ and to the tradition of the church. And these have got to be lived out in mercy uh, and love Pell's story starts in 1955 in Ballarat. At St. Patrick's College, Ballarat, he was a leader of everything. He was head of sport, he was head of debating, he was head of drama, he was a natural leader. And one night, he went into the town to a public meeting being held by B.A. Santa Maria, the firebrand Catholic warrior, who by that stage was tearing Australian politics apart. Already, he'd split the Labour Party into the Catholic Labour Party, the DLP, and the rest. This was a split that would keep Labour out of power for a generation. And Santa Maria was fighting the good fight against communism. He was a Cold War warrior. And young George Pell decided he would join this mission. This decided him to become a priest. It wasn't the love of Jesus Christ entering his heart and filling him with a spiritual mission. It was always a political mission, and it was always about the power of the church. He 
He decided not to become a professional footballer, which was open to him because he was such an athlete. He decided he would train as a priest. So in 1960, he went into the seminary and he went in at a time when the Catholic Church was at the high tide after the Second World War. The seminaries were stuffed full of young men training to be priests. And it matters in understanding Pell's career that from the moment he entered the seminary, he has been watching the tide flow out all these years since. After only a couple of years at Werribee on the outskirts of Melbourne, he was plucked out and sent to Rome because he'd already been identified as a star, as a leader of the future. He was taken to the heart of the church for his training and he was ordained in Rome. And from Rome, he was sent to Oxford to become, he says, and he's probably right, the first priest to get a PhD in Oxford since the Reformation. But a crucial thing happened while he was in Oxford, and that was Humano Vitae. Christian Mariet Corpus, we understand that its teaching is but the manifestation of their true law. The church banning the pill. Now, this is crucial in his career because banning the pill brought mass disobedience into the ranks of the Catholics in the Western Church. And there grew up a split between those who believed that what ultimately mattered was conscience and those who believed that ultimately what mattered was obedience. And Pell was an obedience priest. Pope Paul VI in his prophetic instruction in 1968, Humanae Vitae, which denied the legitimacy of artificial contraception, foretold the radical and unfortunate consequences which would spring from the contraceptive mentality. Years ago, a piece of graffiti scrawled on a Brazilian train read, those who petition for divorce use the ink of their children's tears. He has preached all his life against the primacy of conscience. He has preached all his life on the need to obey the church. And of course, what has to be obeyed here are what he likes to call the hard teachings of Christ. And it's all about sex. We find almost no public acknowledgement that when we violate the natural moral order in the area of sexuality, marriage and family life, harmful human consequences will follow. He has spent his entire career demanding that Catholics follow the extraordinarily strict rules of sex laid down by the church. No sex of any kind outside marriage, no masturbation, and certainly no sex between men. Divorce only in the most extraordinary circumstances and only with the blessing of the church, but otherwise the model of the heterosexual family for him is at the heart of his understanding of Catholicism. There's no doubt that the institution of marriage, man and woman and children, is absolutely central to every developed uh, civilization. And he has demanded obedience to the rules that he would so dramatically break all his career. In a pansexual, individualist society, it's easier to reject 
or avoid Christ's harder teachings and take refuge in the occasional peace of social work or advocacy. In 1971, he was back home, he was back in Ballarat, and Ballarat was run by Santa Maria bishops and it was tough and it was tough on sex and all of that. But it was, as we know now, um, a hellhole of pedophile abuse by brothers and priests. From at least the 1970s onwards, we now know more than 100 children were abused there by Catholic clergy. Up to 50 of those victims have since committed suicide. The sheer number of victims and the sheer amount of uh, assaults and rapes and that, that went on is just hideous. And it was also, we know now, one of the worst places in the Catholic world for hiding the predations of those brothers and priests. And Pell was part of the committee that moved around one of the very worst of these priests, a man called Jared Ridsdale. I wasn't going to be sitting there saying nothing if uh, we were aware of, uh, I was aware of that. This was not just the attitude of the little Ballarat diocese in Australia. This was the same rule all around the world. If it was in Uruguay or Boston or Berlin or Vienna, it was exactly the same rule. You did not engage with the authorities when your priests and brothers were abusing children. You did not engage with them. You moved the priests around, you sent them from parish to parish. And Pell sat on the committee that did that for Gerard Ridsdale. Years later, explaining his actions to parliamentary inquiries and royal commissions, he would always say two things. He would say, I never knew enough. I might have had suspicions, but I never knew enough. And I never had the authority to act. But you see, uh, hindsight is a big help. We didn't have that uh, then. He was just one of uh, a number of priests. He came up and he, well, he's moved a bit often. Uh, um, now, what is clear from his career is that he never questioned, that he never sought to find out. If he had suspicions, he appears not to have done anything to confirm or dispel them. He just went along. He was heading for greatness in the church. If he in Ballarat, as a young priest, had kicked up a stink about the abuse of children in that diocese, he would not have ended up a cardinal. He'd be in happy retirement somewhere in a seaside parish as a priest. Preferment only came by obedience. And of course, he was the high priest of obedience. He was always preaching obedience. But something else was discovered in Ballarat about Pell. He's a very good administrator. Now, administrators are gold in an organisation like the church. And he had a magic touch for getting money and cooperation from secular authorities. Very easy in the company of the powerful. Not a bleeding heart kind of priest. Um, tough, practical, always believing in getting the very best professionals to assist the church. 
a real trademark of his career. You get the best. You get the best architects, the best administrators, the best lawyers, the best financiers. You get the best. And that capacity of his was hugely valuable. And after first running the teachers, Catholic Teachers College in Ballarat, he was taken down to Melbourne to run the seminary where he had once studied. Now, the tide was a long way out by this time, and it wasn't the mighty establishment at Werribee. It was a little establishment in the suburbs. And he set about trying to restore its traditional ways, its traditional rules, its traditional dress. It caused a lot of, lot of furor. But it was exactly the kind of attitude that appealed to the new pope, John Paul II. I'm sure people watching at home can now sense the atmosphere. It's very exciting. And John Paul II came to Melbourne. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it is with heartfelt joy that we have come together. Pell by this time had a handful of very conservative bishops who were spruiking for him in Rome. And their arguments, the presence of John Paul II in Melbourne, came together and suddenly it was announced that George Pell would become an auxiliary bishop of the mighty Archdiocese of Melbourne, a huge archdiocese. And everybody was a bit surprised, this uncongenial man, yeah, very good administrator. But here very clearly was the pattern of how Pell would climb through the church. His insistence on obedience, his hardness, his capacities as an administrator, the toughness, all came together. These qualities in him won him few friends, many enemies, and high office. Melbourne also had terrible problems of abusive priests, including in that chunk of the archdiocese that was Pell's particular responsibility. He did nothing effective, nothing, to get rid of those priests, to protect those children. He made inquiries, there were some meetings, but it was always the same mantra, I didn't know enough and I didn't have the authority. Now, there are many people who say an auxiliary bishop of a mighty archdiocese like Melbourne has an immense amount of authority if he wishes to exercise it. But Pell did not. And things ticked along as they had before until he himself became Archbishop of Melbourne in 1996 at a grandiose ceremony in the Exhibition Building. By this time, the church worldwide had been grappling for about 15 years with the reality of abuse in its ranks. Starting in America, the church began to face huge financial payouts to victims. And in Australia, the bishops had been struggling for about eight or 10 years to try to come up with a machinery for the church that would deal with victims, and priests, and they were on the verge of setting down a national protocol 
when Pell became Archbishop of Melbourne, and he dashed ahead of them and put in place his own protocol for Melbourne itself, called the Melbourne Response, and it's always been his proud claim that he was the first archbishop in Australia and one of the first archbishops in the world to deal with the scourge of child abuse. It's a matter of regret that the Catholic Church has taken some time to come to grips with this sexual assault issue um, adequately. In some ways, the Melbourne response did. In some ways, it was really quite sensible. But it was still the church judging the church. It was still had as its principal objective to keep these cases out of court. Its principal purpose, which was magnificently fulfilled, was to save the church money. And from the start, the most a victim could be given by the church under the Melbourne response, however horrific the abuse, was $50,000. Dear Mr and Mrs, I won't mention the family name, Mm -hmm. as you know, we act for Archbishop Pell. You offered them 50 grand to be quiet. Uh, I, I offered them 50 grand in uh, compensation according to public, the publicly acknowledged procedures. And you only got the $50,000 when you signed a piece of paper to say you weren't going to talk about it and you weren't going to contest it. And you swear them to secrecy? Well, we ask them to keep... Uh, you swear them, don't ask them, you swear them. Uh, there is a, a, a requirement that they don't talk about it and most of them are happy not to. And you were told if you didn't sign that piece of paper the church would fight you in the courts ruthlessly, and the church did. And if they don't want to use that, they can do something else. They can go to the courts? Yes. Why do you impose this condition, sir? Uh, Because uh, many of them don't want uh, to be subjected to publicity, and of course it's shameful for the church. Whatever else George Pell achieved for the Archdiocese of Melbourne in his years there, This has to be put on the list. He saved the Archdiocese at least a couple of hundred million dollars in claims by abuse victims. Melbourne was Pell's town. He knew it intimately. He knew the powerful. He worked that town. They were comfortable with him. He was comfortable with them. The problem for Melbourne, for a man of Pell's ambitions was, by a quirk of history, only the archbishops of Sydney get made cardinals. So if he was to get his red hat, he had to shift to Sydney. So he put Melbourne behind him and came to Sydney in 2001. And within a couple of years, everything happened as it was supposed to happen and he became a cardinal. So he was the Cardinal Archbishop of Sydney for a decade. And he did in Sydney what he had done in Melbourne. He set himself the task of saving the church money by blocking the access of victims to the courts. So they had to deal with the church. They had to take what the church offered them. And he fought extraordinarily aggressively and managed to establish in the courts in New South Wales the principle that you could sue the church, you could always sue the church, but you weren't going to get any money because, and follow me closely here, the money was held by a branch of the church that had nothing to do with the oversight of priests. Are you with me? If a priest is raping little boys, 
That's got nothing to do with the organisation that holds, in Sydney's case, the billions of dollars of assets. So you could convince the court that this priest or this brother had violently abused you when you were a 12-year-old. But then the church said, look, I'm awfully sorry, but this priest owns nothing. And really, he's a pauper, so we can't give you anything. And of course, the law protects us from having to open up the floodgates of our trust funds. This is called the Ellis Defence. It's now been reversed everywhere in Australia. But at the time, it was a mighty achievement for George Pell. He was ferociously criticised for it. The criticism swept off him, left him untouched, because he had done what he has so often in his career set out to do, which is to preserve the prestige and magnificence of the institution. From the 1990s, even before he became Archbishop of Melbourne, Pell had been appointed to important committees in Rome. He was flying backwards and forwards between Rome and Australia. His Italian is absolutely fluent. He was an operator in Rome at the same time that he was a mighty figure in the church in Australia. In 2013, there was a new pope, and this was supposed to be a different pope, a pope with much more open views about faith and sex, a fuzzier, more small-ill liberal pope. And when he appointed George Pell to the extraordinary new position, essentially treasurer of the Vatican, people were astonished. They, you know, why? Why why appoint a man so very different from the Pope with such a different view of the church and faith? And the answer was because it was recognised that Pell was such a good administrator, that he was so tough, and he was given a task by the Pope to bring the finances of the Vatican into the modern world, to find where the money was hidden, to audit institutions which for centuries had never been audited. And it was a big, ambitious political task handed to this hard-nosed, skilled administrator, George Pell. Surprised everybody that that the Pope had made him, in some views, the third most powerful man in Rome, because he was going to find where the money was. When we moved, uh, the the Pope uh, appointed me, nobody could say what the financial situation of the Vatican was accurately. Nobody knew. He persuaded the Vatican to appoint PricewaterhouseCoopers from London to come in and go through the books. (laughs) This was dangerous for a lot of people in the Vatican. It was revolutionary. The London auditors got to work, and it wasn't long before Pell had been able to identify. 1.4 billion euros worth of assets which went on the books, which is quite something. He was glad he was able to say, oh, the financial position of the church is much better than we thought. Look, here's another billion dollars. But the old forces of the Vatican were not going to have a bar of this, and... A technical difficulty was found in the appointment of PricewaterhouseCoopers and the whole structure was shifted, demolished, Pell lost power. He was not up to the subtle and the brutal politics of the Vatican when it came to the money. 
He could safeguard the money in Melbourne. He could safeguard the money in Sydney. But the brutal politics of Rome meant that he failed in Rome. And that failure came just as his past in the church in Australia caught up with him. A month after his work as treasurer was sabotaged in Rome, the news broke that he was being investigated himself for multiple allegations of child abuse. There had always been stuff in the air. Soon after he became Archbishop of Sydney, he'd had to step aside for a few months because a man had emerged who claimed that Pell had abused him when Pell was a seminarian and he was an altar boy on Phillip Island 40 or 50 years before. The church hired a retired judge, a fine man, and there was an inquiry, another one of those private inquiries the church so much prefers to public inquiries. And the judge did not disbelieve the man who was complaining of abuse, didn't disbelieve Pell either, felt he couldn't adjudicate between the two. Pell claimed that this finding totally exonerated him. It, it didn't. It left things unresolved. But Pell had returned um, to his post as Archbishop of Sydney. And it had always been known that Pell loved swimming. I mean, swimming was one of his big things. And, and romping with kids at swimming pools was something that he was admired for by his um, official biographer and it was noted by many people how much he loved playing with kids at swimming pools and while no details emerged at this point about what the charges might all be about there was kind of the assumption in the air that that's what the police were interested in and they came to Rome they interviewed him and then in the middle of 2017 they charged him Good morning. Today, Victoria Police have charged Cardinal George Pell with historical sexual assault offences. Cardinal Pell is facing multiple charges in respect to historic sexual offences, and there are multiple complainants relating to those charges. Uh, good morning to you all. I want to say one or two brief words about my situation. Uh, these matters have been under investigation uh, now for two years. There have been leaks to the media. There's been relentless character assassination. Uh, I'm innocent of these charges. They are false. The whole idea of sexual abuse is abhorrent to me. News of these charges strengthens my resolve and court proceedings now offer me an opportunity to clear my name and then return here uh, back to Rome to work. I'm looking forward finally to having my day in court.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.